Acts chapter 2. There are gentlemen in the aisles that have Bibles. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd like you to have one with our compliments. If you could get their attention, that Bible should also be marked in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning in Acts chapter 2. Didn't the kids do a good job this morning? One of the reasons that we are looking forward, one of the many reasons we're looking forward to being in that new ministry center that we were talking about is that uh, we can guarantee that the risers we thought we would have will be at the front. So the kids did a good job of improvising. And sorry to those of you whose kids were short and in the back. (laughs) You can imagine them singing. Have them sing it for you at home maybe later today if you didn't get to see them singing. I don't know about you, but I find uh, cultural differences a very fascinating study. There are all sorts of of cultural differences when you go from culture to culture, um, from very outward things, like the way people dress, to things that are not so outward, such as the way individuals think about time. I'm not exactly a world traveler. But I remember being in Tanzania, East Africa, a few years ago. And one of the things that was a little bit difficult to get used to is that it was common to see uh, men at a church gathering or something walking, walking over to one side of the church, holding hands, and talking to each other. And in Tanzanian culture, uh, a, a sign of attentiveness to the other person that's speaking to you is to shake their hand, but then not stop holding it and to continue talking to them. And it took me a little bit of getting used to, and it, it took me a little bit of getting used to, especially for myself, when someone would take my hand, and now I, didn't, I don't speak Swahili, so I wasn't engaged in conversation often, but when I was, I had to overcome the awkwardness of the person taking my hand and then keeping it while he spoke to me. But that's a cultural difference. It's, it's, a way of, it's a way of showing attentiveness in conversation that they show that we don't show. We don't see guys over in cafe community between the services holding hands to talk to each other. That doesn't happen in our culture. But there are all sorts of cultural differences. Some cultural differences relate to the way the individual thinks of himself or herself in relationship to the group, the way, the way an individual thinks of him or herself in relationship to the larger group. In individualistic societies, the goals of individuals are valued more highly than the goals of the group. Individuals are rewarded for behaving independently, making their own plans, and working toward achieving their personal goals. North American culture, northern And Eastern European cultures are like that. In more collective societies, on the other hand, the needs of the group are considered more important than those of the individual. In these societies, kinship ties are much stronger and may take precedence over expertise in matters of appointments and promotions. So in some cultures, the individual trumps the group, and in other cultures, the group trumps the individual. Now, sometimes cultural values mesh quite nicely with the Bible. But sometimes 
the values of the Bible kind of, of have a way of rubbing against the grain of culture. And when, when we find the Bible doing that, when the Bible rubs against the grain of culture, we're faced with a decision. What, what's going to trump the other? And of course we believe that it, when it comes to culture or the Bible, the Bible should win. Now, I believe that one of the things that we need to do a better job at is letting the Bible shape our Christian culture away from the individualism that we know so well. Individualism is second nature to us. We often think in terms of me instead of we. But the Bible wants us to think less me and more we. And it's hard to do that, isn't it? Because even from something as basic as trying to gain employment, when you're trying to get the job, what's the selling point? Making yourself stand out. And so you can go to seminars that will, will coach you on what to say and what to wear and how to carry yourself. We see people on TV that get a job because of the car that they pulled up to the interview in. Even down to something simple like the kind of paper, the weight or the feel or the color of that you print your resume on, all to get that resume to get to the top and make you stand out and make you separate yourself from the pack. When we think of ourselves, when we as individuals think of ourselves, we tend to define ourselves with individual categories, not group categories. And when we think and we consider our identity, we tend to find identity in the things we harness to give definition to our lives. Our identity is defined by us as individuals, not by us as a group. But to those of us who have met Jesus, the gospel redefines that, doesn't it? The Bible, the gospel strips you of the individualism that you often hold so dear. When you come to Jesus, Jesus gives you a new identity. When you come to Jesus, he doesn't want the things that you have to bring. He's not looking at He's not looking at the things that you can offer him as a credit to yourself. Jesus demands that you come to him with open hands and he gives you a new identity. The Bible says that you were once strangers and aliens, but now you have been brought near. You are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. You no longer have a personal identity. Of course, you have the things that make you unique, but you're no longer relying on those things What defines you is who you are in Christ. And every success that Jesus has has been credited to you. And the full acceptance that Jesus had with the Father is now your acceptance with the Father. And you live out of that new identity. That's one of the ways that the gospel shapes us, shapes our identity. And it is the primary way. But there is a secondary way that the gospel shapes shapes our identity. And you can see there in the take-home truth in the outline that was in your program, you can follow along and fill in the blanks if you'd like. You can leave it to the side if you don't like. But you can see there in the take-home truth, I say this, Christians find their identity in community. 
And I mean community broadly, not the name of our church. Christians find their identity in community. The first and primary means of identity are who, is who you are in Christ. But there is a second very important thing that should be fundamental to who you are and how you view yourself. And that is how you relate to us. Christians should find their identity in community. What should give shape to your life? What should give shape to my life is the gospel not only saves me and gives us me the righteousness of Christ, but it puts me in community with other believers. And being in community with these people should provide shape and meaning and identity to my life. So what does it look like when Christians find their identity in community? What does it look like when Christians are willing to shed some of their individualism and become a part of a group? I want to look to Acts chapter 2 to provide some answers to that question this morning. What's going on in Acts chapter 2 is the Apostle Peter has just preached a message that has resulted in 3,000 people coming to Christ. I would say that's a good one. It's better than mine messages. 3,000 people come to Christ, respond in faith to the gospel. So what does life look like for those 3,000 people who have just come to Christ? Well, Acts chapter 2 gives us a window into seeing exactly what their lives were like. And here's what they look like. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You can immediately see the communal nature of their life together after coming to Christ. After putting their faith in Jesus, taking him as their Messiah, these believers were together. And, and quickly, the Christian community, the gathering, became fundamental to who they were. If you and I are going to find our identity in community, then we will need to do three things, three observations from the text that I want us to see this morning. The first is this. You will devote yourself to community priorities. If you are going to find your identity, your place in community, then you are first of all going to devote yourself to community priorities. A person who finds their identity in that way is inevitably going to have to shuffle priorities around. It's going to change your life, in other words. It doesn't mean that you're going to abandon your responsibilities. We all have a wide variety of responsibilities. But it does mean that you are no longer going to make decisions factoring in only me, myself, and I. Or you're not only going to make decisions based on the impact on your family because you have a broader family to consider now. 
And if you are going to be part of this community, you are going to have to vote, devote yourself to it, and you are going to have to shuffle priorities, and I'm going to have to shuffle my priorities. Maybe I can put it this way. Guys, do you remember, for those of you who are married, do you guys remember what it was like before you were married? <laughs> for me, it was bad. <laughs> uh, for some of you, it was great, probably. <laughs> but remember what, it, what life was like before you were married? If you came home in an evening and you're watching a game, and it's a late, it's a doubleheader, it's the second game, and about halftime you want some Chinese food, you can order takeout, bring the Chinese food home, and you can eat like a slob. And, and you can fall asleep on the couch that night with cartons of Chinese food all over the coffee table, little mounds of rice on the, on the couch and on the floor. Okay, you can fall asleep like that, wake up in the morning, go to work, and not really worry about cleaning it up. And the cool thing about it is when you get home the next night, your dinner is already prepared. It's right there. And you can leave things like that for a week if you want. Who's going to tell you not to? Maybe the health department. (laughs) Or if your buddy calls you up on a Friday morning while you're at work and says, hey, you want to go on a fishing trip this weekend? Sure, why not? I got nothing going on. I'll go. But um, it's not that way when you get married anymore, is it? Things change. Your wife is not okay with cartons of Kung Pao chicken growing mold like some kind of petri dish in a science lab for a week. Your wife's not okay with that. Your wife is not okay with you giving her a call on Friday morning and letting her know on your anniversary weekend that Billy Bob called and wants to go fishing. And so you're going to take off and spend the weekend with him. Now, maybe, if some, of you, maybe some of you do that. You shouldn't. But, but for most of us, you don't operate that way anymore. Why? Why don't you operate that way anymore? Well, it's because your wife has to factor into your priorities now. You, know, you no longer make decisions solely in terms of yourself and the impact on you. You make decisions based on their impact on us. You make decisions based on their impact on her. Your commitment to her, your union with her, means that there are constraints on you. Constraints aren't a bad thing. There are constraints nonetheless. Commitment to anything or anyone is going to cost you, right? If you're going to commit to anything or anyone, it's going to cost you. It's going to require something of you. And many of us have trouble committing to one another because we realize that if we take the plunge and we really go all in, it's going to require something of us. But we need to devote ourselves to the priorities of the community. We need to devote ourselves to each other and pursue these things together. And so verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to four things in verse 42. They devoted themselves to four things. And that word devoted also means to stay by, persist at, or remain with. Okay, They had a dogged pursuit of these four things. And the first is apostolic teaching. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And you can imagine their interest in this, can't you? Because remember when Jesus comes back from the dead and he's walking along the road to Emmaus with two men and he's explaining to them what they had been missing the whole time. He's explaining how all of the Old Testament was pointing to and fulfilled in him. And so as, as, as they start to make the connections and as the lights come on and they're starting to see how, how this, this old era is giving dawn to the new, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, understanding, and I'm sure lights are coming on. They're seeing prophecies that were in the Old Testament that they had never seen before, how they had been fleshed out and fulfilled in Jesus. They were exciting times for them. And we have the apostles' teaching in written form ourselves. They wrote that stuff down and they sent it to churches and you have a copy of it on your phone and in your lap. We've got written witness from Peter, the man that preached that message. And Peter says this, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So apparently Peter thought the message that he was preaching, that they were devoted to, was important enough to write down for future generations. It wasn't for them. It had something profound to say to us as well. And so we too need to be devoted to the word, devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And I want us to see that we're, we're not just we're not just devoted to that, to the word in isolation. There is a communal pursuit of the word, okay? It's not just that you and I as individuals are pursuing the word. We are pursuing the word together. There's something, there's something unique and special about a group of people who have committed themselves to hearing the word preached every week and to, as a group, being shaped by it. We live in an age when you have access to all sorts of pastors and teachers. You can access them through the internet, through podcasts, through the radio. You can watch them on TV. And there's a reason for that. They're gifted communicators. Many times, they're more get, much more gifted than the communicator that you've got to see every week. Those are good things. You should take advantage of them and listen to them and pursue the word through, that, through those means. But those communicators don't care about you personally. They don't love you personally the way your pastors do. And they can't apply the word personally to you the way your pastors do because they have no idea who you are. But in God's providence, he ordained something called preaching. And preaching assumes that there's going to be an assembly of people who are going to be gathered to hear it. And it's something that we pursue together. When we hear Pastor Ken preach through James, we should, we're being shaped together. We're all hearing the same thing and we're, we're, we're as it were, looking across the aisle at each, other, at each other and saying, let's do this. This is the word that God has for our particular church at this particular time. Let's help each other press into this and do this. There is a communal nature to our experience of the word. 
And we've got to devote ourselves to it. We devote ourselves to the Word not only in gathered worship, but we devote ourselves to the Word in our relationships throughout the week. We need to be pursuing the Word, not just as information, but as application. And one of the reasons we offer community groups is for an opportunity to take the Word that we've heard the previous Sunday and try to protect ourselves as best we can from falling into into the trap of reading but not heeding, being hearers, but not being doers. And if you've been in a community group and if you've been in a discussion of the previous week's message, you see that, that, that connections are made through your interactions with other believers. Their life speaks to you. Their experiences speak to you. Their perspective speaks to you in a way that you cannot have simply reading the text on your own. And so what we want to be is a people who are absolutely, as this text says, absolutely devoted to the word, hearing it, and then pressing it deep into our hearts, holding up a mirror in front of each other and helping us grow and move forward, doing it together. The second thing they give themselves to is fellowship. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching or to the word. They devote themselves to fellowship. We're going to spend a few minutes more on this later, but let me just say that the word for fellowship simply means a sharing together of something with someone. And in the New Testament, fellowship is not just a generic sharing of anything with anyone, but it's the fact that we are united around Christ. It's a fact that all kinds of people across the spectrum from different perspectives and different socioeconomic strata and different ethnicities and all sorts of things in various churches can be brought together. I mean, there are, there are several people, lots of you, in, in our assembly, and I don't have much of a connection with you. We don't have common interests. We don't like the same things. We don't pursue the same hobbies or whatever. But we still have fellowship Because our fellowship is not centered around those things. It's not centered around common interests or common pursuits. It's centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. The fact is, you and I have been profoundly and radically altered and changed. And that shared experience forms the basis for our fellowship. And when we get together, our our gatherings... Not our, not our worship gatherings, but when we get together in twos and threes as families and couples, our gatherings should reflect that. Fellowship, fellowship happens through the stuff of life. It happens when you go out to eat together. It, happens, it can happen when you go to concerts or movies or where you share skills. You come over and work on someone else's car. You borrow something from... Fellowship can happen in all those arenas. It should. I'm not saying that that whenever you get together, make sure somebody prepares a a small sermon or devotional so that while you're in in the car on the way to the restaurant, somebody can pull the Bible out and read that. I'm not talking about that. But I am saying that true fellowship can happen in in all of those venues if our focus is on Jesus. You have not fellowshiped simply because you are in close proximity to another Christian, is what I'm saying. Fellowship is deeper than that. 
And it should happen more naturally than that. Fellowship happens in the natural conversations of life with other believers because of Jesus. They gave themselves, thirdly, to the breaking of bread. This term, breaking of bread, could mean they gave themselves to the observance of the Lord's Supper or communion, something that we still observe today in our church. It could mean that. Luke, who wrote this book, uses that phrase to refer to, to that when he talks about what Jesus did. The Bible uses that elsewhere. But to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's the way Luke means it or if he means it particular, just particularly for getting together and having meals. From what we're going to see in the rest of the verses and what we've already read, they obviously had a lot of meals together. So he could mean that. What I do know is that the practice of the early church in the first century quickly became that those two things were put together. In fact, it came to have a name. It was called the agape, which is the Greek word for love. It was referred, simply to, sim, referred to simply as the agape, the love feast. And believers would gather together constantly, breaking bread in each other's homes and celebrating the Lord's Supper together, proclaiming his death till he comes. Fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. I think it's interesting that this word devoted in Acts 42, half of the uses in the New Testament, that word devoted is connected to the act of prayer. You see here in Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. That's our word for devoted. They joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Acts 6, 4, we will turn this responsibility over to them. This was the care of widows. They had to figure out what they were going to do to care for widows. And they said, we, the elders, the pastors, will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer. Again, that's our word devoted. In Romans 12 and verse 12, it says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful or devoted in prayer. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel the conviction of the Spirit when I read that. These Christians pursued prayer together. You know, when we do the, th- the prayer on Sunday morning, and, and, and often... Pastor Ken will say, and all God's people said, and we'll all say amen together. Do you realize we're not just doing that for novelty? We're not just doing that because it's unique. We're not just doing that because it's kind of a cool thing to do. We're doing it to remind each other that when someone is leading us in prayer, our hearts are united with that person, and we are lifting up our voices to God along with that person and offering our yes, amen, so be it, Lord, with that person. When we pray together in our community groups, we should be asking God to to do what we cannot do for ourselves. To do the prayer that we sing so often. Plant your word down deep in us. Cause it to bear fruit. Open up our ears to hear 
lead us in your truth. What would happen if we made a commitment to spend less time talking to each other and more time together talking to God? What would it look like if, if our get-togethers were less venting sessions and when we discovered problems, when we had needs, we didn't worry about them, but we took them to the Lord? What would happen if our community groups were consumed with people changed by the gospel, having their lives completely reprioritized by the gospel, and asking God to do what he's promised he'll do? Asking God to change us by the power of the gospel, help us grow in the gospel, help us spread the gospel. What would it look like if we would make a commitment to absolutely, tenaciously devote ourselves to that? If you're going to find your identity in community, then you're going to have to devote yourself to the right priorities. But you are secondly going to have to see community as a lifestyle, not an event. Number two, you will see community as a lifestyle, not an event. What jumps out to me as I read this passage is that their experience of community and fellowship was not related to a particular date and time on a calendar. There is nothing wrong with that. Some people say, have, will say against community groups, well, fellowship should just be happening. You can't schedule fellowship. Well, you can, and we do. But we should not content ourselves with that because it doesn't look like the church did. It doesn't look like they were content to say, all right, we have fulfilled our obligation to fellowship with one another because we have done this event at a particular time in a, different, a particular place. Fellowship for them was a way of life. And fellowship should be a way of life for us too. How together were they? Well, we know from the text that they gathered every day in the temple courts. On the east side of the temple, there was a huge, huge porch, a huge patio called Solomon's Porch, and it could hold a very large number of people. They gathered there for apostolic instruction. But I want us to focus on what that lifestyle looked like outside of those gatherings because the text also tells us that they were constantly together. And we can see that one of the things that they did was share their material possessions with one another. The phrase, they had all things in common, about sums up the way that they lived together. They didn't regard their possessions as their own. And when somebody else in the community had need, they were quick to respond to meet that need from their own resources. And it's not just a one-time event. We find in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, there were no needy persons... Among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. That's some serious need meeting, isn't it? Selling, selling property to help somebody else? I mean, this isn't just going into your basement and finding a few things to sell on eBay. This is significant cash that people are expending to meet the needs of other people. And it wasn't forced. It wasn't required of believers that they do this. We know that for sure. 
It was, it was something that was completely voluntary. And it wasn't for the point of, it wasn't, the point was not so that they could all be even. The point was that those who, in, who had need could be helped. And there were those who had the resources to help them. Becoming a Christian would become more and more costly, particularly in that culture. So let me just ask you a question. How does that strike you? when you read something like that. I mean, that's, that's major giving. And I don't give like that. Some of you do give like that. And you may not be called upon. We live in a pretty affluent society. You may not be called upon to give like that. But the question remains, do you view the resources that God has given you as God's and thus given to you to help others? In other words, I'm, I'm asking the question of myself as I'm studying for this and as I'm preparing for this, would I be willing to give up something that I couldn't get back to help someone else? Because I'm, I'm good at giving from a, from a vantage point of excess. I'm good at budgeting for something or, or giving when I've got extra, but when it means it's going to cost me something, that's a completely different ballgame. I mean, we've got people that can do that, right? There's people, somebody, somebody can do that, right? But not me. Shouldn't the, shouldn't the church do something about that? And I don't think that's the way they saw it. I think that they were looking for opportunities to help each other. The gospel had so gripped their hearts and changed them that they were willing to give and they were willing to share even their material possessions with one another. If Jesus' grip is tightening on your heart, then your grip will be loosening on your wallet. That's Christianity 101. They, they shared their material possessions with one another. They also shared their table. The Bible says they broke bread in their homes with glad and sincere hearts. There's something special about sharing a meal with other people, isn't there? There's a book called A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table. I recommend it to you. But in A Meal with Jesus, the author says that he still appreciates every meal that his wife cooks for him. He says this, Each meal is an embodiment of her love for me and for our two daughters and our many guests. Her love doesn't consist merely in her cooking, but her cooking gives tangible form to her love. When I, as I've been reading that book, I've been absolutely fascinated by how much food comes up in the New Testament. I mean, it comes up all the time. And when you look at the life of Jesus throughout Luke, throughout the Gospel of Luke, he's always at somebody's house eating. Food is an opportunity for him. Food is a way of, of fellowshipping with others. Food is a way of telling someone, I accept you enough to bring you into my home with me around my table and share with you. And this is what these believers are doing. They're sharing meals with each other. 
And as you read throughout the New Testament, you can quickly see that when, when, when Jesus opens hearts, Christians open their homes. And I just want to show you a couple of verses about this briefly. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Another one. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. This is a jailer. His apostles have just been in prison. They've been released from prison. And at the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he, the jailer, and all his family were baptized. And what happens next? The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Two more quick ones. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Colossians 4.15, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. When Jesus changes your heart, you stop looking at your resources as yours, and you want to open those up and share those things with other people. The Bible is full of exhortations for us to exercise hospitality to one another. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, 1 Peter 4.9 says. And interestingly, the overseer is an interchangeable word with pastor. And one of the qualifications for a pastor is not that he have a seminary degree and that he have done this and that he be able to grow the church into the size of a Fortune 500 company. A pastor, a qualification for a pastor is not that he must have the business savvy to harness social media for the good of his church. All those things are fine in and of themselves, but none of those things are qualifications for pastors. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. In other words, you can't get your foot in the door of leadership unless you're willing to serve. That's what the Bible text is telling us there. We've got this whole structure of what they have to be, and we miss some of the most basic things, like hospitality. When you truly begin to define yourself by your relationship to the community, you stop thinking about fellowship in terms of a date and time on a calendar, and you see it more as a way of life. And it means you're going to have to make choices. It means you're going to have to cut some things. It might mean that you arrange your house differently. It might mean that you purchase a different kind of furniture, one that's able to sustain dings. It might mean that you change your grocery budget to account for 16 pounds of spaghetti. I don't know what it means. You figure it out. But it means something. We've got to change our priorities to make our homes a welcoming place because homes can be hubs of activity that extend the outreach and love of Jesus through his church. Thirdly and lastly, If you find your your identity in community, you will contribute to the community's growth. 
You will, commit, you will contribute to community growth. Look at the end in verse 47. It says, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The effect of these believers living like that and it's admittedly countercultural, okay? When I read that and I think, man, I got to let these people that close to me, I don't really like that. I like seeing you guys on Sunday morning, but I'm good with that. <laughs> but the effect of really loving one another has effect on people around them. And they saw people added to their number and they enjoyed they enjoyed, the text says, the favor of all the people. Now, it wasn't always going to be like that. They weren't always going to enjoy the favor of all the people. Because it says later in Acts chapter 4, the authorities seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. And then in Acts 5, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So it's not a guarantee that when you live in community like this, all of a sudden everybody around you is going to be, think you're the greatest person in the world. Not necessarily. There are other factors at play. So we probably would expect then, if that's the case, that growth really slowed, right? Because people are afraid to join them in Solomon's colonnade. Okay, I could face jail time for this. Growth probably slows. Not at all. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. This is serious growth. Or the rest of the previous verse that we said. They met in Solomon's colonnade, and it says uh, towards the end, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. When the gospel takes effect, whether the conditions are positive or adverse, the advance of the gospel is unstoppable. God intends the way that we live in community and love each other to be a preview of what life will one day be like. God, God takes the identity that you have, and reverses it. He gives you the righteousness of Christ that you do not own, and he puts you in community with people where there is love and care for each other, and he intends to put that on display as the teaser trailer of something that's coming that is going to be much better. We haven't gotten to the feature yet. Now, believing friends here, we have community groups as a means, as a breeding ground for th these kinds of relationships and this kind of love. But I chose my words carefully because community groups can just become another event that I go to. And community, as we've seen, is a way of life. And, and my burden is for us as, as a people, our church particularly, 
to catch the vision for that. To, to be excited by what we've seen in Acts 2 and to say, that could be us. We could look like that. We could have that kind of fellowship. We could be devoted to that kind of thing. And to my friends here that may not be Christians this morning, you may be hesitant. This talk of, of giving up your identity, that's crazy talk. I've spent a lot of time making myself into who I am. Or there are some of you who think, I got nothing to contribute. A lot of times we are hesitant to give up our identity to Jesus and his community because either we think we have too much to lose or nothing to give. And friends, if you think that you have too much to lose, I'm warning you this morning, Jesus is warning you this morning, that your foundation is made of sand. And it's going to wash out. And you're not going to be able to cash the checks you've written. The only person that comes to Jesus is a person who has realized that foundation is not solid. You can only come with empty hands. For those who think they have nothing to offer, you are right. And you are closer to the truth. But here's the good news. The only people that Jesus accepts are the people who come to him with open hands and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And when you find your place at the cross, you can find your place at the table because we have a spot open for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we pray together this morning, I have a burden, and I pray that you infect us with a burden to see the vision that's presented here in Acts chapter 2 become a reality in our minds and hearts. Lord, I long for us to be a people who are devoted to the word, devoted to fellowship and care for one another, devoted to prayer, hospitable, willing to give to meet the needs of each other. I long to be a community that people from the outside looking in could say, see how they love one another. They are willing even to die for one another. Lord, I pray that, that we would give up the things that hold us back from giving ourselves to you and to each other. For we know that in doing that, you have promised us a much greater joy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.